This is U.S. Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today I'm joined by Rebecca Sutton-Koser, who is the lead developer in the Center for Digital Humanities, also known as CDH, at Princeton University. Rebecca does really cool and interesting work at the intersection of what we might consider traditional humanities and technology. But I'm definitely not the best to tell you. We have Rebecca with us today, and she is going to share her story. So Rebecca, could you first tell us a little bit about your background, where you came from, and how you got involved in the digital humanities? Sure. So in undergraduate, I ended up double majoring in English and computer science. I've always loved reading and loved books, but I also grew up with math in the home. Both my parents studied math and my dad worked with computers, which I know is a great privilege to have that background. In college, I just kind of at some point decided, hey, maybe I'm going to major in computer science. I think that was the end of my freshman year. And I worked in the computer labs and had a great experience learning all kinds of things. And at the same time, you know, I'm studying literature and writing papers. And during college, I interned as a software engineer, but decided to pursue literature first. I actually was advised by an engineering manager at the place that I interned. She said that literature would be harder to go back to. So I got a fellowship to go to Emory University and do a PhD in English literature. And very quickly, I got connected to the Electronic Tech Center. So I've always had this kind of overlap of, you know, sometimes focused more on the tech side, sometimes more on the literature side. I often found when I was like, when I was writing my dissertation, I had all these ideas for code projects that I didn't have time for. And then after I finished my PhD, I got a job working in the library as a software developer. Uh, that's more digital libraries kind of work, a little bit of scholarly digital humanities. But then when I'm so busy doing code, I have all these ideas for like creative projects. So now that I'm at Princeton and doing DH work, I have this amazing job where I get to do work that integrates both aspects of that work. I'm involved in humanities research, but I'm doing technically innovative work that's challenging and engaging. Interesting. In retrospect, why do you think that your engineering manager said that literature would be harder to go back to? It's interesting, right? Because people would often think technology is harder to go back to if you leave it because it's hard to keep up with the pace of change. I think she's right that if I had not pursued the graduate degree, then I would not likely have gone back to it. I think I just kind of would have moved on and done something else. You know, you get it, especially if you go into software engineering, you get a, a good paying job and you get nice hours and you're doing interesting work. I could see that being fulfilling and not wanting to do grad school, which is hard. Now you're lead developer in the Center for Digital Humanities. Can you tell us how the center fits within the academic ecosystem of Princeton? For example, does the center act like an academic department or do you provide services for academic departments? That is a good question and I will do my best to explain. We're a little weird. We're not a department, but we're not a service center. We are a research unit. We're located in the library, but we're not actually part of the library which sometimes is confusing to people. We support research and we do research ourselves. So all of the staff, the full-time staff are also researchers. My team partners with faculty to do custom software development in support of humanities research. Other activities that we have going on, we have grants to support projects just getting started. We have grants for dataset curation work. 
we have workshops and events. Last year we had a huge year of data and brought in a lot of speakers to get people talking campus-wide about data and thinking about humanities data. Were you around when your institution started the research unit? Do you know like how it came to be? I was not here. I think CDH is about five years old at this point and I've been here three years or, or maybe we're six, I forget. I know there was a group on campus it was originally called DHI, which is like Digital Humanities Initiative, that had meetings and it was faculty and staff and graduate students who were interested in having a digital humanities group on campus. They did strategic planning and got funding and were able to create this group. And we've grown from that. It started out very small and now we're filling up our space. So you mentioned that you design software for researchers, which is really awesome. Could you maybe pick a recent project or just hypothetical and walk us through that process? Yeah, so I'll talk about the one we're working on currently. We've been working on the Shakespeare and Company project. We're about to launch a preview version of it, which is a big milestone for us. We're gonna make part of the site live, which is the library members. Sylvia Beach had a lending library in Paris in the 20s and 40s, 30s and 40s that was frequented by literary luminaries like James Joyce and Gertrude Stein and, and Hemingway. So, and the, the archival materials are here at Princeton. This is a long running project, so it's a little different from some of our others, but at CDH faculty apply to work with us. So we have a grant structure when we put out a call for proposals and they apply. We've, we've adjusted our structure a little now. What we're calling it now is a research partnership to really highlight the collaborative nature of the work. It is truly a collaboration between CDH staff and the faculty and the grad students involved. So after a project is accepted, which we staff review and then our faculty executive council review and decide which projects we'll take on, then we go through a chartering process and really talk about roles and goals and scope and try to make a plan, even though of course, like schedules and timelines go out of the water as soon as you start working on things and hitting problems. But the code part of it really takes a partnership to think through, you know, the faculty people come in with ideas and amazing domain knowledge and expertise, but they don't know what can be done or what should be done, what's, what's interesting or valuable to build in terms of software. And so we get to work with them and think through what would be interesting, what would be meaningful from like how to structure the data and what data we care about down to what the web interface should look like and how users should interact with the data. One thing I've noticed in your work is that you drive data from really unexpected and interesting places. For example, one time you did geomapping of the work around the world in 80 days. And when you think about it, written text is really just teeming with these hidden layers of data. And I'm interested to hear about what you think we can potentially learn or what we as a society in not looking at these layers might actually be missing. There's so many possibilities, right? I think this was part of our, our year of data initiative last year is to get humanities and non-humanities people to, to recognize the data inherent in humanities work because it's not always framed in that way, but it is data. And that lens is really fruitful. When we partner with our researchers that, that come to work with CDH, data modeling is an act of interpretation right? Someone comes with a project and they have all these materials, whether it's archival data or historical data that they're pulling from different sources and connecting. And part of that research includes deciding what data you care about and how you're framing and connecting those pieces. There's kind of a creativity to it of thinking, what's the information that matters? 
what's the information that will allow me to answer the research questions I'm interested in or that might enable others to do interesting research to build on the stuff that I'm collecting now. For early projects when they're getting started, it's really important for us to think through and document what the data structure is, how we're modeling it and what it means for the world of that project. I can imagine that can be challenging if you have an idea of what you want to represent, but you don't have something that you can sort of hard code, like this is how I'm going to actually measure it from the data. Right, right. Well, sometimes we get things wrong and we have to adjust or it limits the kind of inferences that we can make. Okay, so let's jump over to another project that you shared with me called Derrida's Margins. You sent to me a few recordings that were really interesting. And before we continue, let's play one quickly for our listeners. So we only just played about 20 seconds because we have more to talk about, but could you tell us more about this experimental sonification project? Sure. So the programming historian is an amazing resource online with tutorials to do all kinds of things from a historian perspective in a technical direction to kind of empower people to do their own digital humanities work. And there's a tutorial on there to do data sonification, which is something I'm interested in. I'm interested in exploring alternatives to visualizing data because we get so stuck in the visual and there's there's something compelling about using the other senses to me for accessibility but it's more than that as part of our work here at cdh we get our own research and development time and a while back i took an afternoon or a day to play with the data we had generated from our derrida's margins project on references in of grammatology and to work through that tutorial and see what it would mean to turn it into sound, which means taking, this is another act of translation, like we talked about, right? I'm turning the sequence of pages in the book become the beats of sound in the music. And then data that we have about references on those pages become different notes that are played in that sequence. And then you experience the data in a completely different way than you do when you're looking at the site and the visuals of the, the references and the annotated pages. I really enjoyed listening to it. I didn't hear musical tone, but I heard patterns and rhythm, and there was sort of a sense of urgency. Were there any learnings or final takeaways from that specific project? It was sort of an experiment, sort of a one-off that I shared. I think it is important to share our experiments, even if they're not always successful, right? It, it might inspire something else. Are you ever worried that sort of with this inundation of technology in all aspects of our lives that people will spend less time reading, writing, you know, whether that be literature, poetry, or similar? And how can we use technology to not distract from humanities, but to strengthen them? It seems like we're already going down that path, right? It's so easy to be seduced by the addiction of screens, the distraction. I'm hardly ever bored anymore, right? There's just always something going on. I can always glance at my phone, but boredom is so fruitful. It can be. Walking without something piping in your, your headphones into your brain, you have ideas that you might not have otherwise. I think there are ways that we can use technology to be more creative or make sure that we step away from technology and have space without it. I've started using a paper notebook more. Sometimes it's really valuable to just write things down by hand. It's 
easier than typing in a computer. It feels different. There's still plenty of creativity, like humanities and tech creativity, and, and people who care about that, I think, will always make time for it. The technology we have now, the popular things like Twitter and all that are more oriented to consumers, like consuming rather than producing. It should be possible to create more engaging and ethical mediums that would promote deeper thinking and engagement and collaboration and communication. On the commercial side of things, do you see any strong incentives for a company being started based on these sorts of things? Hmm. I don't know that it would be financially rewarding. I don't know. I guess it, it might be a different enough model from what's out there that it might be appealing to people. But that's the problem, right? It, like we think tech is gonna be the answer and sometimes it's not. That's something I've learned the years that I've been a developer. If you write code, then your initial response to things is that to solve a problem, I need to write more code. But sometimes that's not the right choice. It's hard to recognize that, but at least if you know you have that tendency to wanna to write code to solve a problem or to use tech, then maybe you can check yourself and say, oh, is there a simpler solution to this that doesn't involve writing something new. To focus on code a little bit, you've done a little writing about how and why we test software and development best practices. So other than code not always being the answer, what are some of the greatest challenges facing us with respect to development and testing? Is it the fact that we don't have enough research software engineers? Do researchers not have the incentives to learn and do best practices? Or is it access to resources? I think the lack of training for research software engineers is a problem. There's no standard path, right? There's not standard training. So people find their own way into this kind of work. The best practices I learned, I learned on the job. I learned from other people. And if I didn't have a community of developers to learn that from, I, I wouldn't have it. There's also gotta be a commitment from the directors of the research. They have to care about it. They have to understand why it matters. If they only care about their deadlines and getting stuff done, it's hard to convince somebody that we need to take time. Hey, we really need to take time to document and test this code. If you're not a developer and you haven't seen the payoff of say having unit tests that enable you to refactor something and overhaul it and still be confident that it works properly, that's a, that's a tough sell. I feel like we're making some progress in seeing the problems of not having best practices where there have been instances of research that's done on faulty code and people are having to retract results, but it might take a while to get there. In terms of open source, could you tell us about some of the projects that you worked on? I got a, I got a shout out on Twitter for a little library that I wrote called Piffle, which is just for working with IIIF images in Python. And that one actually was a spinoff of a, a project I did at Emory called Redux, which was a platform for search and browse of digitized books that allowed annotation with features that would let people make their own annotated editions of the books. In a I'm lucky in that all of our projects here at CDH are open source, and we've been making an effort to, as we have opportunity where things are generalizable, we're building out libraries that support the projects, but that stand alone. Most of the things I'm doing are, they're in the library, digital library kind of space. We use the solar search engine and we were kind of frustrated by the state of Python tooling in that area. So we started building out our own approach and so we've got a little alpha library called Parasolar. I wanted to call it Parasol, but that was already taken. It's pretty slick. And I think once we have it used on a couple of projects, we might be able to promote it more and share it and write up how it's different from the other options that are out there. You live in this really elegant balance between computer science and literature. What's the most unexpected overlap you found between those two domains? I just this week, published a little piece about how coding is writing. It's something I've thought about a lot 
with my background. I think it's inevitable. And writing it up was really interesting. And, and then for a newsletter, for the first time, we included a code snippet. And I wrote up the logic of code and what it's doing and how we're dealing with some sort of incomplete data in the project because we're working with historical materials. And it is interesting to see the parallels between coding and writing. There's revision, the way we structure it and organize it. It's, it's like this big collaborative publication. And just like with text, there's always more than one way to write things. The same thing with code, right? There's so many different approaches you can take and there's different pluses and minuses to, to different approaches. So how can someone that's listening right now that says, oh, this is so cool. The work that I've been doing as a programmer can be mapped to digital humanities. How can I get started in this field? So whether someone that's listening is an open source developer, a student, or an RC, what can they do? What kind of projects or training can they pursue to get started? There's a lot of resources online for training and for particular skills, but there's nothing like working on a real project. I know when I'm learning a new technology, it doesn't really sink in until I start to use it to do something I want. I think for a researcher, they have a research question that can be empowered by technology, either investigating it themselves or finding someone to partner with who will work with them, but also hopefully ask questions, right? That's the biggest thing. Sometimes our culture, both academic culture and technical culture, it's like frowned upon to ask questions because you don't know everything, but of course you don't know everything. How are you gonna learn if you don't admit that you don't know things? For RSTs, I think technical community is really important and I don't, I think it's a problem. It's hard to know how to move that forward. I think there are organizations like the USRSE that are working on that, but it's so common to have a single developer working by themselves. And that is, it's really not ideal. You need people to talk to, to share code with, to share ideas. When you get stuck, you need to be able to work through a problem and how can you learn if you're just by yourself, you can't keep up with things. You can't learn best practices all completely on your own. I cannot tell you how deeply I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite written piece? Any, any sort of format? I some people have favorites and some people don't. I enjoy fantasy and science fiction. I was thinking about this recently when I was in my PhD for literature, at some point I lost the capability to read for fun, which is terrible. And it took me, I think, about a year to recover. And I'm so glad that I now have the time and brain space to read for fun. So one of my favorite authors is Connie Willis. And I was thinking about her recently because she's got some amazing Christmas short stories. Yeah, I was just thinking there must be some kind of a name for that. It's like a disease, postdoctoral fictional anhedonia. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Okay, last question. What's the most interesting or the strangest thing that you've discovered about Princeton? Hmm. I don't know if it's the most interesting, but I have discovered this campus seems to be more siloed than others in terms of humanities and sciences. And there's something about the physical geography and the space between where things are on campus that I think is related to that problem. And sometimes I want to do a map of departments and compare, but that's like a project for when I have oodles of time. You could figure out some metric of collaboration based on publication or something, and then see if it's somehow related, if it maps onto physical location. Right? Something. Wouldn't it be so yeah. interesting to compare campus geography? Anyway, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. If you can't tell, I think your work is just so cool, and I'm following you on Twitter, and I can't, can't wait to see what you come up with and share next. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you.